I'm so thankful to be part of a church family uh, that, that loves one another, that you can grow as a family. If you're a guest today, I hope that you'll find a home here, that you'll discover uh, what a loving family looks like. And, you know, part of being part of a family is that we get to rejoice when others rejoice. And part of being part of a family is that we also mourn with those who mourn. This morning, I share with you some very difficult news. We received word last night that the 41-year-old son of Dennis and Denise Nathan Ahern was tragically hit by a car and killed. Many of you know the Ahern family. You know that Dennis and Denise have been part of our church for decades. They serve as missionaries, as part of our church missionary team. Yesterday, Dennis and Denise, who are currently in Colorado, uh, they, they were finishing up a ministry trip with missionaries and their families when they received word from one of their daughters who called and notified her parents of this tragic death of her. Dennis and Denise will be driving back from Colorado, and it's going to be obviously a long drive back. Had a chance to speak with Dennis and Denise. Uh, they appreciate all of our prayers. Uh, and, and I thank you in advance, church family, for being just that. God has blessed our church with such a loving family that understands what it means to live out their faith in a very tangible way. So I know that you are ready to embrace Dennis and Denise, to lend an ear, to drop off a meal, to be there for them when they return. Would you bow with me right now? We want to ask God that he would pour out his comfort and grace on Dennis, Denise, their three other children, their grandchildren, their loved ones, and their church family. Father, we come before you. Our hearts are grieved. For those of us who know the Ahern family, our hearts ache. And so, Father, in this moment right now, I pray, God, that Dennis and Denise and their family would experience your comfort in their lives. And Holy Spirit, would you make it known to them that their church family hurts? And God, as they make their long road trip back home from Colorado, I pray that you would surround their drive every moment of their drive, that they would remember who you are and how much you love Nathan and how much you love them and how deeply you 
want to bring healing into their lives. And thank you in advance, Lord, for our church family here who cares so much for one another. We see, the, we see this lived out day by day, week after week, year after year. And we're presented with another opportunity, God, to be a family and to hurt as a family and to love as a family and to care for our family. And so we, we ask, God, that you would give us the strength and the courage to do so. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came to earth to die on the cross, to forgive our sins, that we might have life eternal. We long for that day that we will see you face to face. And to, Lord, to live here on earth and to live out our faith in a way that would be evident to all those who come across our way, Lord. And so we thank you in advance for what you will teach us in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we open God's word this morning, I have some exciting news that I do want to share with you. Uh, we are so thankful that God has raised up godly servants in our church over the many, many years, 54 years of our church's existence. And last week at our business meeting, we had the opportunity to confirm our newest officers for this coming year, 2021 and 2022. And I want to share with you our newest elders who will be starting their term. And so uh, these three men will be joining our uh, elder team, and two of them will be uh, on their second term, I guess, uh, term doing this, and one is new, his first term as an elder. And so we're so thankful for John Hamill, for Nick Gonzalez, and for William Shee. They are our newest elders. So can we thank God for them? And they will join our continuing elders. Our elders serve for a three-year term. Continuing on as our elders are Tom Leininger, who will be our new elder chairman. I'm looking forward to working closely with Tom. Uh, with Chuck Johnson, Tony Fang, John Suzuki, Kelvin Chin, and Gilbert Zaragoza. And a very special thank you to Phil and to Bruce Biller, who have finished up their term. Uh, it has been an absolute joy to serve alongside these two godly leaders, men with servants' hearts. They've just finished out their term. And church, I want you to know this, that we're finishing a term unlike any other season in the life of our church. And I could not uh, have asked for two better servants to serve alongside for the last three years. So thank you to Phil. Thank you to Bruce. Can we thank God for that? <laughs> last week, we also uh, confirmed our newest church clerk who serves for one year. Our church clerk serves a one-year term, and we're excited that Marsha Williams will be our new church clerk. Marsha, thank you. And a special thanks to Yin Suzuki, who finished up her term as our church clerk. And then also continuing on are our deacons and deaconesses. They serve a two-year term, and so these deacons and deaconesses are just in the middle of their term. 
And so uh, Janet Clark and Kim McGill serve as our deaconesses of care and concern. Amy Boyston is our deaconess of fellowship. Ron Clark is our deacon of finance. And Madeline Zaragoza is our deaconess of missions. Can we thank God for all these faithful servants? Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. We are starting the final chapter of this incredibly challenging book. And after today, we have two more weeks in this series through the book of James. And I trust that God's Word has spoken to you every single week that we've opened up God's Word. I know it's spoken to me. And I trust that His Word will teach us a very valuable lesson this morning. The title of my message this morning is Riches That Rust. Riches That Rust. So James chapter 5, I'll start in verse 1. I'll read our passage in its entirety through verse 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does you. Wow, James, tell us how you really feel, huh? Whoa. You might be sitting there thinking, James, tone it down a bit. You're making people feel a little uncomfortable. Why this harsh rebuke. But we need to understand that James didn't say this for no reason at all. He wasn't condemning all those who were rich, by the way. You know, the church at that time, it was comprised of a lot of rich followers as well as poor followers of Jesus. And followers of Jesus both rich and poor, they coexisted in the same fellowship, and there were oftentimes tensions. So keep in mind here, James is not condemning wealth here. He's not condemning all the rich. So our first response should not be to hide our checking account from God today, okay? And that'd be silly anyway, because he already knows your password. So don't worry, okay? God knows your password to your checking account. So don't try to hide all your activity and transactions from him. There are godly followers who are considered rich. And there are godly followers who are considered poor. In this passage, James is speaking specifically to the people that he referenced in the previous chapter in chapter 4. You might recall from last week that there were some in the church at that time who boasted in their arrogance. 
And by boasting, they were also oppressing the poor. And they thought, you know what? I'm going to make my own decisions independent of God. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to plan out my future and plan it out to the minutest of detail. But what they failed to do was they failed to consult God with their plans. So James warned them back in chapter 4, wait a minute, be careful. You ought to say the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. And so here in chapter 5, James continues this rebuke to the wicked wealthy who we read about in chapter 4. The wicked wealthy who are living their lives selfishly and not according to the will of God. You know, wealth, if we're not careful, can easily become an obstacle between us and God. And let's face it, very few things in life stand as a greater obstacle between us and God than money. One pastor says that having a lot in this world can sometimes make our hearts wedded or even welded to the world. And maybe you've discovered that in your own life. Sometimes wealth can make us wedded that bond like a ring or welded two pieces of metal coming together to the world. And what happens is this. When we are wedded to something, when we are welded to something, what happens is we tend to have a tight grip on that thing. We don't easily let go. It's a powerful thing to be wedded or welded to something. And that's why James doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back in his rebuke of the wicked wealthy. And by the way, when I read that, didn't it sound a lot like James was filling the shoes of an Old Testament prophet? He sounded much like an Old Testament prophet right there in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And like an Old Testament prophet, he was not afraid to use hyperbole or what we call poetic exaggeration. I mean, think about it. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. And he says, You have lived on earth in luxury, in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So he warns the wicked wealthy of the coming judgment. He tells them, you better weep and howl. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What does it mean to weep and howl? That was just a hyperbole, an exaggerated poetic phrasing to say, repent. Change your ways before it's too late. Get your hearts right with God or else you will regret what will happen in the future. One Puritan commentator said this. Listen closely. I found these words very fascinating. Better to weep here where there are wiping handkerchiefs in the hand of Christ than to have your eyes whipped out in hell. 
Better to howl with men now than to yell with devils later. I'll tell you, these Puritan theologians, they really had a way with words. Better to howl now than to yell with devils later. In other words, repent now. Change from your ways before it's too late. Let's face it, when it comes to money, you know this, I imagine firsthand, I know this. Money is often a slippery slope, isn't it? Because what happens is this. Money influences us to act a certain way. We make one act, and that action starts a downward spiral. And that action leads to another action, which leads to another action. And ultimately what happens is we dig ourselves such a big hole that we can't get out of it. And that's what money often does to people. And so James, he figuratively takes these people by their shoulders and he shakes them. He says, wake up. If you are alive, then stop living like you are dead. And then he reminds them of what has become of their wealth. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He says, your riches have rotted. Their garments are moth-eaten. Their gold and silver, it's all corroded. Now, what have we been saying throughout this series? Remember, James was influenced by two sources. One was Jewish wisdom literature. You've heard me say that the book of James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. What was the second source that I told you was uh, heavily influential in James's writing? What was that? The Sermon on the Mount. That's right. And doesn't this passage sound very familiar with what Jesus said? in his sermon on the mount. In Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, this is what Jesus said in his sermon. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when I look at this passage in Matthew 6, and when I compare it to the passage in James 5, in essence, what these two passages are asking is the question, will you be wealthy in heaven? That's the question that we ought to ask ourselves on a daily basis, will we be wealthy heaven? You see, because when we store all our treasures here on earth, guess what happens? Moths eat holes through our clothes. I'm sure we've all experienced that. And why does it seem like moths only have appetites for our most expensive sweaters? By the way, here's a fun fact or maybe not so fun fact. 
Did you know that it's not the moths that we see flying around that eat the holes in our sweaters? It's not those moths. You see, because at the adult stage, moths, they don't have mouths. Here's what happens. A female moth lays her fertilized eggs onto our clothes. And at any given time, it could be anywhere from 50 to 1,000 fertilized eggs. Yes. And so the mother moth flies around looking for a garment that she deems fit for her babies. And she only finds the most expensive silk, wool, and cashmere. And she lays her eggs and she says, eat up, enjoy. Picture that the next time you see a hole in your sweater. So the larva, these little fertilized eggs, they eat holes into our clothes. Thieves break a window and they steal your jewelry, your electronics, your valuables. When I was in college, I had this very frightening experience. One year, my roommates and I, we lived in an apartment in Westwood. And in Westwood, parking is at a premium. So there are four of us sharing an apartment in Westwood, but we were only given two parking spots. And it was located down below in the subterranean garage. And the way it worked was this. We had, uh, not parallel parking, but we had, we had tandem parking. And so that meant one car in front of the other. And so every time we wanted to pull our car out, if it was in the front, then we'd have to pull the car out behind us. So one particular day, I went downstairs into my garage because I had to get something from my car. And my car was in front of my roommate's car, which meant that I had to walk past his car to get to my car. But this particular day, I passed his car, but then I noticed something very strange inside his car. I looked down, and there was a guy lying in my roommate's car. And so I kind of backed away. And so in a minute, the guy came out of the car because I think he thought that I was gone. When he came out of the car, I said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, oh, this is my friend's car. I said, you're lying. That's my roommate's car. And at that moment, he pulls out a screwdriver and starts chasing me. I never ran so fast. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm still alive. I, I think he was just trying to scare me. But it was a frightening experience to have someone chase you with a huge screwdriver. He ran away. I called the cops, filed the report, and that was that. Ironically, <laughs> now, by the way, uh, after I filed the report, I noticed that around my roommate's car, there were a lot of scratches around his stereo. Okay? 
So the thief was trying to take his stereo. Now, I'm going to date myself here. But back then, back then, when I was in college, it was very popular for guys to uh, swap out their factory stereos for these really high-quality stereos. It's not like the cars today where all those stereos are nicely built in and all. And so back then, we would go buy these really nice stereos and put them into our cars. And so obviously the thief was trying to break out the brand new stereo, but he failed. So there were just some scratches. Now the irony was a few weeks later, my stereo got stolen. Yes. That particular day I was parked upstairs on the street, on the curb. I came out and my window was smashed, glass everywhere, and my stereo was gone. There's no guarantee that what we have in our possession today will still be in our possession a year from now. There's no guarantee. We learned about the uncertainty of the future in last week's sermon. In fact, we've been living out firsthand the uncertainty of the future this entire season. You and I know that we are not guaranteed tomorrow is guaranteed tomorrow. Now, I want us to understand that this does not prohibit us from making plans, investing for the future, investing in your children. It doesn't prohibit us from making wise and sensible choices. In fact, the Bible calls us to be good stewards and to take care of our families. If we are committed to God, though, if we're committed to his will, then everything we do, work, save, invest, spend, everything we do, we do knowing that our commitment to God influences those things. And by the way, I think heaven's a safer place to stockpile our wealth on earth. Because there are no moths, there is no rust, there are no thieves, and there are no bear markets in heaven. If we're committed to God, then we will invest in his kingdom. You know, in Matthew 6, I just read to you a phrase that you may have heard many times over the course of your lives. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I've shared this before, that oftentimes that portion of Matthew 6 is misunderstood. In fact, it's often misquoted. People think, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. That sounds reasonable. So people often go around misquoting Matthew 6. They say, for where your heart is, There your treasure will be also. When in fact, Jesus said just the opposite. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. People have it backwards. Jesus actually reverses the order. Here's the idea. When we invest our lives into God's purposes, 
our hearts will follow. Our hearts will be passionate and excited about what God is doing. You see, whatever we invest our time and our money and our resources into, it'll become important to us. People sometimes think, oh, if I love God so much, if I'm passionate about God, if I am overwhelmingly grateful for all that he's done for me, then I'm going to give him my money this week. No, no, it's just the opposite. If we give for God's kingdom, if we give to his purposes, our hearts will then follow. It's like this. If we invest in a stock, what's going to happen? You're going to follow that stock. Every day you're going to wake up and you're going to check that stock multiple times a day because you are invested in it. It'll become important to you. That's what happens when we invest in the kingdom of God. When we invest in a missionary, what happens? We're much more prone to pray for that missionary. We will receive the newsletters with excitement. We will keep up with their lives. For where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. Again, God's word doesn't say, don't save for retirement. It doesn't say, don't put away for your kid's college fund. Okay, please put away for your kid's college fund. College is expensive. So God's word doesn't say, neglect those things. But we are to do those things with a kingdom perspective, not at the expense of God's kingdom. And certainly not by taking advantage of others, which is what the wicked wealthy were doing in James 5. Let's go back to James 5. Look at verse 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now that's an interesting title. The Lord of hosts. That was a very specific title that depicted God as a warrior. And he is leading, he is commanding, he is overseeing a host of angelic armies. Can you just picture that? And the image that paints in our minds is this, that God listens to the cries of the oppressed and those cries will move God to action. Those who take advantage of the poor hears the cries of the poor and he will act on it. Now, at this point, someone might ask, well, Tim, then why isn't God doing something about that right now? Why isn't he doing something about those who oppress the poor right now? Well, part of the answer that that will not be fully settled until God settles it fully in eternity. 
That's part of the answer. But at the same time, it is no excuse for us to take a defeatist mentality and say, oh, well, God's going to settle it later on, so it's just the way it is. And that's how it is. There will always be poor people, and that's the way it is. No. The church must play a vital role in caring for the poor and the vulnerable. The church, us, E-Free Church Diamond Bar, we must be at the forefront of caring for the poor and the vulnerable. We saw this back in chapter 1. Remember, James said that pure and undefiled religion is one that visits orphans and widows in their affliction. And we can add the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable to that list. I said this early on in our series, but my hope is this, that when we're done with the series, that it just wasn't all talk. That we will think of even new and creative ways for us as a church to put our and to be there at the forefront to care for the poor and the vulnerable. And I trust that God's going to use some of you to be there at the forefront. We must play a vital role in caring for those in need. And I believe that the level of generosity that we have as a church, and we have a high level of generosity, I believe it can be taken to an even greater level if we remind ourselves that the big difference between ownership and stewardship. Our world is all about ownership. Our world values ownership. God desires stewardship. You see, because the Bible says everything is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. It's actually not ours. We are stewards. He is the owner. And if everything is the Lord's, and it is, then we cannot have a mindset of scarcity. People go through life thinking, oh, but I need to save this. I need to keep this. I need to hold on to this because next year, five years, ten years. And God says, wait a minute. I'm not a poor God. I'm a God of abundance. So don't think that I am a God of scarcity. So don't treat my money with scarcity. Everything is the Lord's. So we must have a mindset of abundance and not this tight-fisted hoarding mentality. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus shares this account where a widow gives all that she has. And all that she owned was two copper coins. In total, it amounted to maybe a penny. That's it. And the scene is this. Many rich putting large sums of money in the offering box. And then along comes this widow 
and she drops the two coins, all that she had. And by the way, her two coins would not have even paid for a meal for a priest. That's how little she had. And yet, Jesus saw this as an opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson and all those standing by. So he called them to him and he commended the widow for putting, quote, more in the offering box than anybody else. That's because she understood stewardship and ownership. She knew that what she was giving was not actually hers. It was God's. And she was just being obedient. So generosity, church, begins with an understanding that God's the owner. He's a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity. That's why every material possession that we've been blessed with ought to be viewed as a resource, not for our own selfish gain, but for the kingdom of God. God's the owner. We're the stewards. But, okay, I'm going to give you something that hopefully will excite you. As God's stewards, here's what we get, okay? You want something? Ready? We like to get things, right? As God's stewards, here's what we get. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verses 17 to 19, Paul writes this to his spiritual son, Timothy. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, I'm going to stop there for a second, okay? Do you know who's considered rich? If you had a change of clothing and a meal for the day, you were considered rich. So I'd imagine that's most of us here. Okay, let's continue. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to what? Enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love it here. Verse 17 says, God provides us with everything to enjoy. He doesn't want us to go through life miserable. It's okay. Enjoy those things. If you get a bonus, enjoy it. Take your family out to dinner. If you get a bonus, enjoy it. Take your pastor out to dinner. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. We see that here in our church. We see the many blessings. We see the many many blessings. That's why you are a generous church. In verse 18, it says that we are to be generous and ready to share. And by doing so, here's what happens. We are storing treasures up in heaven. And do you remember what we said last week? A hundred years here on earth, though it may seem long, is very short compared to eternity. There's a story of a sailor who was shipwrecked 
on a South Sea island. When he finally made it onto shore, he was seized by the inhabitants of that island. They lifted him onto their shoulders, they marched him to a throne, and they sat him on that throne, and they called him king. He soon learned that whenever a shipwrecked sailor came to the island, that sailor was made king. But interestingly, he was only made king for one year. Exactly one year. Now, he liked this feeling of being king. And he was uh, uh, just excited about it until he started to ask himself, hmm, what happened to all the previous kings? I don't see any of the previous kings. What he learned was that after that one-year reign as king, that king was then banished to a lonely island to starve to death. So that was the fate that awaited this sailor king. But this king was unlike any previous king. Knowing that he had 365 days to be king and that he would then be banished to this lonely island, here's what he did. He began issuing orders. He commanded carpenters to build boats. And then he commanded farmers to get on those boats and to go to that banished island and to plant crops. And then he sent architects to that island to design a mansion for him. And then he sent workers to that island with hammers and nails to build that mansion. So when his reign was finished, he was exiled, not to a barren island, but to a paradise of plenty. Each of us is like that sailor king. Each of us is like that sailor king. Our time on earth is very short. But we have the, pro- the opportunity to prepare ahead of time. But here's the beauty of storing up treasures in heaven. We're not just working, working, working here and just waiting for heaven. In the midst of our service here on earth, we get to see the impact that that investment is making on the lives of those in God's kingdom and in our communities on a daily basis basis. When we invest in the kingdom of God, we get to witness and experience the life-changing possibilities of that investment in the lives of others right now, and I guarantee our riches will not rust. Would you bow with me? Thank you, Lord, for yet again another reminder that our time here on earth is short. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Lord, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. 
So help us to, to live our lives with a future in mind, knowing that while we live today and invest in tomorrow, we could see the fruits of those investments in the here and now through changed lives, through communities who receive hope, to those in need, the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, who receive the care of Jesus through his church. Thank you, God, for the opportunity that you give to us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus and help us to be just that this coming week. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.